Back when I was a baseball writer at Sports Illustrated in the early 2000s, I was in the spring training press box of the Washington Nationals when two fellow media members, a former all-star outfielder turned announcer and his sycophant producer, began commenting on the looks of a woman reporter standing nearby but out of earshot. They were talking about what they'd do to her, what they thought of her dress, what they thought of her legs, what they thought of her shoes. They talked about how they'd tap that. She couldn't hear, but I caught every word, and I was too cowardly to say something. It was one of the lowest points of my journalism career, and something I think about often, something I would never allow to happen at this point in my life. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every week. Today's episode features Melissa Ludke, the former Sports Illustrated reporter whose 1977 lawsuit against Major League Baseball, which at the time did not allow women reporters access to the clubhouse, forever changed the way the game would be covered. This is episode number 138. Let's sling some yang. Okay, Melissa, it took us two former SI people who were brought up in the days of print Yes. A little bit of time to get this going. That seems appropriate, I think. Um, yes, it does. In fact, uh, when I started at Sports Illustrated, I was uh, sitting at a table with a typewriter. So I go a little further back, and I will also say a dial phone um, in which we had to call the Time, Inc. operator to place a long-distance call. So there you are. I have a story in front of me, Daily News, December 30th, 1977. I'm sure you've seen this in a million like this. Uh, she pitches for covering where everything's bare. DJ Saunders byline, Sports Illustrated reporter Melissa Ludke filed a federal sex discrimination suit yesterday to force Major League Baseball to drop its policy of barring women reporters from the locker room. Miss Ludke, 26, a 1973 graduate of Wellesley College, where she majored in art history, complained that during this year's World Series at Yankee Stadium, she was barred by baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn from post-game locker room activities, even though the Los Angeles Dodgers had given her permission to enter. After the sixth game, October 18th, when the Yankees captured the series crown, though Mayor Beam got in and, quote, men, both credentialed reporters and others with no visible credentials, had access to the clubhouse, she had to wait outside, she said. It is so of another time in so many ways, but also relatable in so many ways because you still see women actually being treated like crap in sports media. And I know you've talked about this a gazillion times, and it's the lead to your, obviously, it's the lead to your obituary. You think so? Uh, it might be. I'm taking a shot. Um, I cannot imagine being 26 and being thrown into this. Uh, I saw clips of you on Howard Cosell. I saw, I saw clips of you all over. I read clips of you being destroyed by people. I read clips of you being praised. I can't imagine this was a fun experience for you to go through. You know, they asked me in December before the um, decision was taken by Time Inc. whether I would agree to be the plaintiff. Um, in this lawsuit. And to say that I don't think I totally understood what that meant to say yes would be an understatement. Um, I said yes because I loved my job. I just thought I had the best job in the whole world. And I just wanted to keep doing it. And I wanted to do it in the best possible way I could. So when I said yes, I was thinking about how much I wanted to be able to fully, you know, do the job that the magazine had sent me to do, which I had tried 
in every way I could think of and succeeded. I will, and we can talk about that perhaps very much under the radar screen and acting totally on my own without the intervention of editors or anyone else. Um, to by the time that World Series began, and most people don't know this, they certainly wouldn't know it from that story. But before that World Series began, because I had worked very hard and very quietly behind the scenes, by the end of the 1977 season, the New York Yankees had actually given me a clubhouse pass to you to go enter their locker room for those last two games. Up until then, the Yankees PR staff had been going through the locker room and meeting me at a side door and opening that side door and giving me full access to Billy Martin's office after the game and ended the season by giving me a clubhouse pass. So that had all taken place because of two things. One is that I had never set this up as something where I was kind of going to barge in and create a scene in order to create a ruckus to try to raise this issue up to um, visibility. I was much more recognizing that as the only woman covering baseball at that time, that I had the obligation, in a sense, to work as firmly but as quietly as I could to have it so that men would gradually adjust to my presence among them. You know, they had adjusted to me being in the press box and on the field and in the dugout. They gradually adjusted to me sitting in Billy Martin's office after the game. I did that for maybe two months before Mickey Morabito gave me that clubhouse pass. And I think Mickey gave it to me because he knew that I was a gradualist. You know, I was someone who was going to really work hard to make this work for everyone. And so when he gave me that pass, I only used the clubhouse pass for those two games before the game. In other words, there's a 45-minute period before the game when most of the reporters are actually doing their work. They're doing their background for stories. The after-game, you know, kind of chaos of the locker room is when they're just picking up a few quotes based on something that happened in the game, and then they're running up to write their stories. For me, the more valuable time was before the game. And during that time, there was not one player who changed his uniform. They came off of the field from batting practice, they stayed in their uniform, and they went back on the field. And I was prohibited as well from being there to do that reporting. Now, I know this case, as you read on that headline, had everything to do in the public imagination about nudity, but in fact, it had only to do with the exclusion of women from this world of baseball. It had started by excluding them from the field during batting practice. It had next gone to the press box and excluded them there. It had excluded them from being able to eat with the male sports writers. They were brought food separately. Anita Martini talked about this in happening in Houston. It happened to Diane Shaw at Fenway Park. They were not allowed to eat with the male sports writers. They were not allowed, I was not allowed in 1976 at Kaminsky Park to enter the Bard's room after the game with Roger Kahn, who I was working on a story with for, for Sports Illustrated, because I was barred from the Bard's room where the sports writers come to drink after the game. 
That was in 1976. So for me to have achieved sort of under the radar screen with no stories being written about it, full clubhouse access that I used to begin to gradually move this ball forward. And then, to go back to your question, to be hit at the beginning of that World Series by the commissioner saying, everything you've done doesn't matter because I'm telling you you'll never go into a locker room as long as I'm commissioner. That was quite a hit to absorb. So when SI asked if I would be the plaintiff, I said, yes, of course I would. But you're right. It changed my life in ways I never could have known when I said yes. It's actually very interesting because I think people, when they read about this, and certainly when it was covered back then, it's kind of like you said, it's almost like an issue of penises and butts. And the truth of the matter is, right, right, but the truth of the matter is, it's almost no different. There used to be um, the old Playboy clubs across America, and you had to join the Playboy club, and it would be a place for men to relax and be men. And it's almost like, if you read the quotes from writers like Jerome Holtzman from back then, even Lee Lee Monfield, who's really come to regret that one in, in a major way, it was like, no, this is our sanctuary where we can kick back, drink martinis, watch baseball, and just be men. And it seems like that's what you were violating more than seeing Reggie Jackson naked. I was violating the boys club. That's exactly right. It was, it was like they had built the, the, uh, tree house and pulled the ladder up and they were damned if they were going to put that ladder down and let one woman. I was standing in for every woman. If I got through, if I managed to get through, they, they felt that there would be an invasion that they would. And that's what they use. They use words like invasion. So it was very much a last bastion of um sort of male exclusivity. And that is what the issue really was. But from my perspective, the issue was equality of access. It was equal, equal access. It wasn't whether the interview took place in the locker room. That was never my call. It was never a call that could be made by a federal judge. That was baseball's decision as to where interviews took place. The only thing that my case argued for, and the only thing that the judge ruled on, is that whatever interview situation baseball was to set up, it had to provide equal access. So it really, and it's, it really wasn't a case about me arguing for access to the locker room. It was saying just whatever access you provide baseball to, to players, women have to be included. Were you at all concerned that baseball comes back and says, all right, fine. We're going to close off locker rooms. Uh, we'll bring players out if you request them. And then you basically don't go down as the world, the world's biggest asshole to media. Well, they tried that for five minutes. Um, and I'll tell you when, um, after the decision came down in 78, it was right before the playoffs in the world series were to begin. And, um, there was a time, and I believe that it was in the beginning of the American League playoffs. Of course, the Yankees were once again involved in it in 70, in 78 as well. And, um, one of the first decisions they made was to close the locker room for, I mean, have the, have everyone be able to go into the locker room for like five minutes. Then they would bring everyone out and they would close the locker room for like 10 minutes or so, presumably so the players could get dressed. And then they would let all the reporters in. So they tried that. They tried it one night. 
because you have never heard such moaning and groaning and complaining as you heard from the men that night who said, how can we do our jobs? You're, you're, this is unfair. This is wrong. You can't do this. You've got to open this up immediately. We're not going to be able to do our jobs. And I was standing there that night saying nothing but taking it in and saying to myself, wow, you've just had 10 minutes of this. I lived through this for two seasons, you know. But yeah. in fact, baseball lasted exactly one night with that. And they realized that they, they couldn't make that work. And so they gave in and um, basically they never tried it again. Who was worse to you, the players or members of the media? You know, it's a question of whether you ask that in retrospect with what I know now, having done some reading and researching of my case, or what I felt then. Um, and I guess what I felt then is that in many ways uh, the sports writers were, because I didn't have much contact with the players. I had no contact with them in the locker room for those first two seasons. And, you know, the older sports writers, the one who's, ones who had been around for a long time, you mentioned a couple, you know, um, Jerome Holtzman, uh, you know, Maury Allen, uh, you know, the, the, the guys, the guys who had come in as the chipmunks, you know, in their era. And um, they'd once been the rebels, and now they kind of saw me arriving. And it wasn't that they said mean things to me, but they pretty much ignored me. But, you know, when you ask about where the challenges came from, it came from things like, you know, being thrown out of the Bard's room. You know, when I walked in with Roger Kahn as a reporter earlier that night in Kaminsky Park in the fall of 1976, and I only learned this by reading Roger's book in 2003. He did not tell me this until I read it in his book. But in this press box that night, I had um, gone and sat like two rows behind him. He was sitting with um, Bill Vec because he was doing a story on Vec, and I was there to help him do reporting. And I guess in Kaminsky Park, they'd never seen a woman in the, in the, in the uh, press box before because a number of the reporters came up and said to Roger, whispered into his ear, that he ought to know better. He shouldn't be bringing his girlfriend into the press box. You know, this is in 1976. So we're getting very close to when I'm fighting this case. So you're seeing that, you know, even though people weren't necessarily saying this directly to me, and they weren't always. I mean, they were polite. They weren't, you know, calling me names. And because they had to put their name onto the columns they wrote about me, there was certainly a civilizing uh, effect that you don't see on Twitter today. Um, so, you know, I mean, I had enough friends among some of the younger writers uh, that I did okay. I could, I could take care of myself. And Roger Angel turned out to be a great friend and a great supporter. Um, Henry Hecht, who was writing for the Post, you know, there were a lot of, there were some of the younger guys who were kind of just starting out. And, um, I had enough people around that I wasn't miserable and I loved what I was doing so much that basically just ignored it. I actually found it surprising and maybe I'm just naive or maybe I'm, I misread history sometimes. You know, Billy Martin has this long history of sort of being a drunk and belligerent and fighting and, arguing and he came up with Mickey Mantle hanging at the Copa and and I was sort of surprised that he was the manager who was open to you being there with the Yankees. What were your experiences with him like? Well, he and Mickey Morbido were very close. Mickey was the uh in his first season as the PR director, Marty Appel had left and in fact when Billy was fired from the Yankees and went out to 
to uh, the Oakland A's, Mickey went with him. I mean, they were very tight. So I think Mickey, you know, sort of carved a lot of this pathway for me. Billy never made any, you know, kind of what he thought was cute or funny comment about me. Um, there were times when it would just be Billy and me in the office because I couldn't go anywhere. I just was kind of plucked down on his couch across from his desk, often staring at the, you know, sole of his cowboy boots that he would sort of throw up on the desk. And he'd le- lean back in his chair. And, you know, as the reporters went in and out to go into the locker room, of course, I couldn't go. So Billy and I would sometimes be left there and you know, I'd just ask him whatever questions I have and we'd have we'd have a conversation. And I always found him to be very respectful of me being there. And, you know, he had he had let I think that I'm not wrong on this, that in spring training, he had let some reporters in as well. He was very open to it. Of course, when it came time for our lawsuit to be, you know, go to a hearing and for affidavits to be submitted on each side, obviously Major League Baseball forced him to sign an affidavit saying that he never believed that women should be anywhere in a clubhouse, etc. And I have his signature on it in the affidavit that I have no doubt he did not write and was just told to sign by baseball, which he did. But he was he was very open to it. Did you understand a Major League ball player, maybe he's a 35-year-old guy who kind of came up in another era and he has a wife who's kind of not happy about this and two kids. And every day he's used to standing by his locker after the game and being naked and joking with Greg Nettles and Bucky Dent and blah, blah, blah. And like all of a sudden he views this woman coming in and it makes him uncomfortable. And he's he's just doesn't feel right about it. like, do you understand the perspective? I totally got it. I got it to the point where. When the first game of the World Series was going to happen, I went up on the Monday afternoon uh, to the practice session, and my express purpose was to go and talk with Tommy Lasorda, who I had, who was the manager of the Dodgers, because all I wanted to do at that point, all I wanted to do was to see if I could arrange that I could have access to Tommy Lasorda after the game, as I had had with Billy Martin. Now, I... When I went up to do that, I had a pass, like everyone else did, that said I had full access to the clubhouse. But because I understood what you are saying, I understood that as a courtesy to try to make a gradualist approach rather than a barging in the door approach work, that I owed it to the Dodgers, who did not have any women covering them, to go up and have a conversation with them about it. So I actually had a conversation with Tommy Lasorda, who was so rattled by the whole idea that he basically just thrust me back onto Tommy John, who was the player rep, who was walking down the dug- to the dugout with us, just by happenstance, introduces me to Tommy John, who I've never met, and sort of foists me off because he's so rattled, he doesn't know what to do about this. And I understood that. Tommy was very much, you know, a 1954 Dodgers, right? I mean, he goes way back. I got it. I understood it. But I then sit down in the dugout with Tommy John for, I don't know, 15, 20 minutes. We have a really long conversation. He takes me very seriously. He looks at my past. He says, I really appreciate that you've approached us about this. We've never had a woman cover us. And thank you for doing that. So really, I reached out as a courtesy to them. 
So Tommy John says to me, well, I'm going to take this back to the players. He said, we're going to just talk about this and have a vote, and I'll meet you right before game one, and I'll let you know what the players say. Now, if I if I was, uh, you know, kind of militant about this, I would have said, I don't need any damn vote from you all. I've got a pass that says I can come in. But I didn't. I said, fine, let me know. Let me know. And so the next night he comes and we meet at the place he tells me at the back of the, uh, near the backstop away from all the other players and press. And he says, um, yeah, he says, you know, it wasn't unanimous, but we talked about it and it's a majority vote. That's how we do things. So fine. You know, you have every right to be there. You have every right to be there. I said, well, thank you very much. So to your point, had I not had the sensitivity to understand this, I don't think that I would have done that. I would have gone about my business. I would have gone out, done some reporting, talked to players. But instead, I was trying to make this work as I had made it work with the Yankees. That was just the way I approached it. And what happened, because I had courteously reached out, Tommy John then says to me as I'm beginning to walk away, he said, hey, could you go and just let Steve Brenner, who's our PR guy, know that we've had this conversation just so he gets a heads up. Now, again, that was not my role. I didn't have to do that. But I said, sure, happy to do that. I didn't know Steve. So I went running around Yankee Stadium trying to find Steve Brenner, who I had never met. And I went and mentioned to Steve and I explained to him what had happened. He barely let me finish my, you know, sentence when he sort of looked like a ghost and kind of ran away. And later from talking to Mickey and the rest, which I didn't do for 35 years afterwards, but I finally found out, you know, that Steve had come up to him and they had gone to, you know, the commissioner's office, Bob Weir's and explained what I had done, you know, basically that I'd gone to the Dodgers, they'd had this vote, and that I would likely be going into the clubhouse afterwards. And that is why I got banned. It's interesting. I feel like one thing I've learned from watching my all-time least favorite human being, Donald Trump, is that sometimes you're better off walking right through instead of going through the right steps and allowing someone to tell you no, is to just ignore everybody and just walk like you belong and barge through. And sometimes people don't even know that they're supposed to say no to you. You know what I mean? Well, I do in one sense, but, you know, I was 26 years old. I had always handled everything at in baseball, everything on my own, because at that same time, there was a different another dynamic going on, Jeff. And that was to be a woman and particularly to be the only woman in what had been a male dominated world. And this would apply not only to baseball, but to you know, just being at Sports Illustrated and kind of doing this kind of reporting, et cetera. This was new. Usually the women were sort of fact-checking the stories and they weren't, you know, kind of going out and trying to do the reporting. But sort of this new wave of my generation had come in. But one of the things we knew, we knew this very well, and this was, again, in people who came into finance, whatever, we knew that we could not complain or whine or go to people and say, we can't do this because we're a woman. We can't do this. We can't do that. You've got to help us. We knew that we just had to figure it out. And that is universal, too. And I've gone back and talked like with Robin Herman, who was the first woman to go into the uh, hockey thing. And she, she was the first woman at the New York Times. 
I've talked to Jane Gross. I've talked to Lori Mifflin. All of us who were first in some way in sports, this was an unwritten rule. You just figured out how to do it. You didn't go back to your editor and say, oh, I can't do it. I can't. It's it's hard. Because I knew that the easy answer would be to be to replace me. So when you're working out there and you're on your own, the idea of, you know, of, of doing something like sort of staging a scene, I was already watched because, you know, I was the only one. The last thing I wanted to do was sort of create a scene, you know, and be in the middle of it. September 25th, 1978, yes. uh, District Judge Constant Baker Motley, who you've spoken very highly of, rightly, ruled in your favor and, and timing's favor. The lawsuit was you, you were saying that the 14th Amendment rights had been violated and you argued the baseball had deprived you as of, quote, covering the sport in the same way as her male colleagues. And, and you won. What does it feel like? Did you know the weight of what it came with and what it would come with, would come with? Or did you just think, great, I won? I think it was more... Um the great I won, but also a growing recognition as it was challenged. It was challenged a few times in like Philadelphia. And in fact, Philadelphia court ruled based on Motley's ruling. So there were a few challenges to it. And baseball was still saying they were going to appeal it. And in fact, went to uh, get a summary judgment on appealing it. And uh, three white men all upheld Motley's decision. So it began to grow on me the significance of it and how it would play out as a sort of ruling that would be a guiding ruling for a lot of other instances other than me. When Motley made her ruling, it really only had to do with me and it only had to do with Yankee Stadium. But because it came from a federal judge and uh, it held a weight that became very evident to me. By the way, you know, the night of the rule, the day of the ruling, there was a game at Yankee Stadium. The Yankees were still in contention for a playoff, et cetera. And a lot of people have asked me, well, did you go to the stadium that night? Did you go to the game? And I say, no, I didn't. And there's a very good reason that I didn't, because I did understand enough by that point because of the columns that had been written about me and about this case and and how it had been portrayed mainly as a case about, you know, player privacy and nudity, et cetera, that 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 was not, I didn't belong up there that night because I knew the story that was going to come out that night, and it was going to be about the women who been sent up there to do a story about the fact that they could be in the locker room. And I knew that those women had never been at baseball games before, that they weren't there to actually cover the baseball game. They were there to hold a microphone and say, here I am in the locker room. And I really wanted no part of that because the reason I'd fought for this case the whole time was so that I could be there where there were no cameras and there were no people doing the story about me in the locker room, but I was able to do the job that I had originally set out to do, which was to report on baseball. So since I was not assigned to go up there that night, um, I didn't go. And I've always looked back on that decision and said I was right not to be there. It wasn't the place for me. The place for me was after all of them had left the locker room and for me to go up and use the access that uh, this federal judge had given me to do my job. The second um, place where I began to recognize the significance of it was two or three days later, I was home and I, I grew up 
in a family where during the dinner hour, we used to watch Walter Cronkite. We always watched Walter Cronkite on CBS News. And we would often talk about sort of issues of the day based on the news, et cetera. That's just what we did as a family over dinner. And um, I think it was, I think that it was like the 28th of September or so. I have the, the transcript. But Walter Cronkite ended his broadcast that night with a story about my lawsuit. And then he ended it with his line, and that's the way it is, September 28, 1978. And I thought, wow. I mean, that to me was that moment where I realized that this had a significance, you know, sort of far greater than the decision just giving me this permission. I, I have a story in front of me from uh, October 21st, 1979, and it ran in the Baltimore Sun. So this is about a year after the decision, and it's called, mm-hmm. it's, still t- it's still tough for women. It's like one example. The lead is when the Pittsburgh Pirates clinched their division title last month, the players sought out specific targets for the traditional champagne shower. Bottles of bubbly were poured over the women reporters in the clubhouse. See, grumbled a male colleague. That just goes to show you they don't belong here. There's a, a woman, Rosemary Ross. She was a writer for the uh, Philadelphia Journal. Tug McGraw, who was a pitcher of the Phillies at the time, even though they were friendly, warned her not to enter the locker room. And he said to her, I wanted to tell you that if you go in there, I'm going to humiliate you just like I do the rest. The one who I've talked to before is uh, Paula Smith, the UPI mm-hmm. in Pittsburgh. And she told me, I mean, she told me a story years ago about when Dave Parker was a pirate and he called her over pretending he had something to say to her and just like whipped out his penis and said, you want this, don't you? And Paula Smith, in one of the great comebacks of all time, said, um, maybe if there wasn't so much fat around it, I could see it. The floodgates were open when this happened. I mean, that's one thing for sure. The floodgates were open. Women who wanted to cover baseball were under attack. Did you personally feel the repercussions of that at all? I did. I, you know, I left sports writing, um, in, uh, after the 1979 season. So I was not in it as long as many of these other women were. Allison was a great friend of mine. And the idea that she covered the Toronto Blue Jays as a beat reporter and traveled with them everywhere. That's an experience I didn't have being with Sports Illustrated. I was, I was more sent out and, you know, it was, it was just different, you know, having that beat. That said, um, you know, in the, in the limited time that I did spend in locker rooms after this, particularly after the games, not so much before because when everyone was dressed and it was just a quieter kind of environment, these things didn't really happen. But in the aftermath, um, like the champagne and the rest, I would say that there would be on any given team one or two or three, a handful, and that's really all it took, a handful of players who wanted to be instigators of, uh, you know, either verbal or sometimes physical displays of, of, of a sort of warning of saying, you don't belong in here. This isn't your place, you know. And it was done often through, um, things like that, unfortunately. Uh, you know, players coming and pulling towels off of, uh, players who were being interviewed. Uh, the Yankees locker room, one time when I came in to it, there was a, uh, cake that had been made in the shape of a penis and it said, you know, for women only or something like that. You know, the males, males are endlessly fascinated by their own anatomy and, actually believe incorrectly that women like men want nothing more than to see the opposite sex naked. Well, 
That is not the case. Women will do whatever they can in most cases to avoid seeing a man naked. I know that baseball players from Jim Bouton's book enjoyed spending most of their free time trying to find women who were naked. So there's a very different uh, sensibility about this. But because most of the commentators and most of the people writing about this case at the time were men, that was the perspective they always put on it. In fact, they were, I mean, the, the most overused line of all the coverage, most overused, was the men saying that they could hardly wait for the time when they could enter and the locker room and see Chrissy Everett naked. That line appeared in, God knows, I don't know, hundreds of stories. So that was the, their total perception of this was about women sort of lurking and leering at naked men. You know, I'm just telling you, Jeff, that that is not what women want to do. Wait, Melissa, I just want to say, I wrote a biography of Brett Favre years ago. And okay. Brett Favre famously sent, quote unquote, his dick pic to a woman reporter. And yes, I just remember thinking at the time and still thinking, and I am a man, what would possibly make you think that someone is going to receive a picture of your penis and think, oh, I got, I'm interested in this guy now. What is it about men that makes them think women want to see pictures of their scrawny little penis? It's the craziest thing ever. Well, but that was, I mean, you've read the coverage of the time. I mean, that was the predominant notion. And that was the notion that Bowie Kuhn, you know, argued and, and sort of put out as a talking point to his media folks. You know, the people who were covering this story, mostly the men, was this idea that it was his job as a family sport, as the national pastime, to be protecting the privacy of his players. Well, it turned out, we discovered this through this, our discovery in the hearing when we got various memos from them, and he was able to be deposed by my attorney, that he never spoke with one player. Not one player ever came to him to ask him to protect them. He took on this role as sort of this, you know, kind of pure savior of, you know, of men's privacy. And then there was this whole argument that took place that I'm just now writing about, actually, in my book, where the judge gets into this whole colloquy with baseball's attorney, where baseball's attorney argues that, you know, that men just have to be naked in the locker room, that there's no other way for them to to communicate with each other and to be with each other. They're compelled to be naked. He uses the word compelled. And she says, like, really? You know, they couldn't put a towel on, couldn't do a bathrobe. They could. I mean, you know, she's just flabbergasted by this notion that they are compelled. And it's part of the tradition and history of the game. And so even in a two hour hearing before the judge, there is this kind of, um, spotlight this kind of you know funneling down to this question again of nudity without ever getting at the point that they'd excluded me from a locker room when not one player was nude not one it was just a bizarre uh playing out of this fantasy world and you're right we were the ones who were causing the trouble we were the vixens we were the ones who were you know, demanding this and demanding that. And it was our morality that should be questioned. Our morality. If we were really a lady 
I mean, people use that term a lot. They called us girls, but they said if we were a lady, then we wouldn't, of course, want to put ourselves in this position, would we? So that brought into question, you know, what were our motivations for wanting to be in there? Before we continue with Two Riders Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman, and I'm here with my son Emmett, and he has something to say. Dad, I don't want to read this. We made a bet. You had the Ravens going to the Super Bowl. Fine. I'm a little teapot, short and stout. My burgers taste like cottage cheese. My beans smell like dog poop. Oink, oink. <laughs> Blueberry cannon. Ah, all notes forever, dude. And? This podcast is sponsored by 503 Sports, kings of the throwback sports merchandise. Visit 503-sports.com for the best hats, jerseys, and shirts. Don't forget the last part. My dad is the smartest guy in the world, like Albert Einstein, only cooler. In reading about this all, one thing that kind of hangs over it and hangs over it for me personally is I got the Sports Illustrated in 1996 and there was one woman senior writer, Kelly Anderson, one. Mm-hmm. Um, there was an editor who you worked with and I worked with and you would walk into his office and there was a huge picture of a woman's breast. The vast majority of editors were men and the vast majority of male editors had swimsuit calendars hanging in their offices. Um, I love Sports Illustrated. I think you love Sports Illustrated. It was not, at least when I was there, a particularly enlightened place for women. And I wonder if there's a little irony in a sense that of all places, SI was the one leading this kind of chart. Well, um, I, I guess there, there could be. You know, on the other hand, it was it was the leading sports magazine of its day. And at that point, it wasn't as though they were going into, to use a word, virgin territory. I mean, the National Basketball Association and the National Hockey League had already, you know, made this their policy. I was already covering the NBA during the off season from baseball. I'd already been in locker rooms. This was not like a huge, you know, kind of uh, a revelation to me. I mean, what I, my fight in baseball was to gain that gradual access to something I already had in the NBA, of which there were no stories really written and, and very few stories written with Robin Herman in the National Hockey League. There were a few initially, you know, after the All-Star game and when she went in, but the thing died down pretty quickly. So, um... You know, I think Sports Illustrated, uh, you know, and again, you have to remember that, that Time Incorporated was the one who actually filed the suit. Uh, it went up through the, the legal channels through Time Inc. It wasn't just Sports Illustrated. And Time Inc. had been one of the companies starting with Newsweek in 1970 and then moving through Time and the Associated Press and NBC and then going to the lawsuit that, uh, you know, Betsy Wade and the seven other women over at the New York Times did, there were gender discrimination cases up the kazoo that were brought against all of, you know, really the major communications and, and magazines, including Time Incorporated, which had signed a conciliation agreement to rectify, you know, their promotion and their pay structures and everything else having to do with women. And that thing was only signed in 1972, seven years before this. And they were just beginning as an institution to begin to make good on some of the timelines and promotions and hiring practices that they had been sued for. 
So, you know, I said this in the New Yorker story that Roger Angel wrote. It didn't go over very big with my bosses at the time, but I believe it to this day, that I believe that, you know, it was a very good way for Time, Inc. to demonstrate what it had basically signed in its conciliation, you know, conciliation agreement on this, per- this earlier charge of discrimination against its own women. So I think there were a lot of motivations. I do believe that Peter Carey, who was my baseball editor, who really took the reins on this one after I didn't call him from the stadium. We had two days off, Tuesday and Wednesday. I got thrown out, you know, barred on Tuesday night. You know, Jeff, I had been working this by myself for two years. I saw no reason to call the magazine and let them know what happened. I know people think that is so odd. Why wouldn't you call your editor? Why wouldn't you let them know? Well, I hadn't let them know anything. I'd been doing it all on my own. No one had ever asked me. No one had ever stepped forward who had any power to change it. So I didn't call him on Tuesday. I didn't call him on Wednesday. I went up to the games. And Thursday was the travel travel day for the teams going to L.A. I wasn't going out there because I was the woman fact checker. So I stayed behind and the man... Jim Kaplan went out to L.A., and when I got to my office on Thursday morning, my phone rang right away, and it was Pete Carey, the baseball editor, and he said, get to my office right away, and I went down. He said, hey, I'm hearing some things from up at the stadium. What's been going on? And only when he asked me did I tell him, and that's when he asked me to go back and type a letter, you know, write it to the commissioner of baseball explaining everything that had happened that night, which I did. And it was then, after I'd written that letter, given him a copy, that he went to the managing editor, Roy Terrell. He said, I want to negotiate this. I want to do whatever is necessary to try to get her the access. You know, she's a damn good baseball reporter. I want to use her, and I think she should have this access. So he became, you know, kind of the instrument to push this ahead internally. It was a very patriarchal place. It was it was a place where you felt like if you were a woman and you were given these kinds of assignments that you were lucky and sort of keep your mouth shut, don't complain, don't whine, and just get the work done, which I did. Let me ask you a, uh, let me ask you a final question. We're both in a, uh, in a Facebook group. Uh, I think it's for former and maybe current SI employees. Yep. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, sadness <laughs> going around these days about the old magazine. I feel like you were there at maybe the most glorious period the period where you had people like DeFord and Jenkins and it was the magazine. You wrote a piece about, about whitewater rafting that appeared on I the did. cover of sports. I mean, what was it to be at sports illustrated in the late 1970s? Uh, it was to be on top of the world. It was, it was literally to be on top of the world. You, you know, you mentioned a couple Roy Blount was there, you know, Frank DeFord, uh, Ray Kennedy, Pat Jordan, I mean, you name it. It was incredible, incredible. Uh, Dan Jenkins, I mean, covering golf, Curry Kirkpatrick covering college basketball. You know, now, granted, I've just named all guys, and that's the way it was. I mean, you know, and when I arrived, we were just past the time where, you know, the women fact checkers um, basically wore white gloves, you know, and never expected to, you know, go out of the building. It was kind of a hermetically sealed job. Um but but that you know uh, with all of that we we really had 
the opportunity to really carve out a sense of the evolution of, you know, kind of sports in America. And aside from having these incredibly gifted writers, this was a time of just explosiveness of, you know, TV contracts. I covered the TV radio beat for two years with Bill Leggett. And it was a time where because of the TV contracts and because of the money that was coming into sports in a way that it never had before, you were seeing all of the dynamics of, of these sports people. You know, you mentioned earlier Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and Bill and Billy Martin at the Copacabana and, you know, the kind of drunken brawls and all of that. This was a time when athletes like Reggie Jackson, you know, broke the million dollar mark and they, they gained a status, um, and sort of a place, um, as sort of entertainers as well as sports people. And, uh, you know, I can remember we had the boxing matches we had then with Muhammad Ali and, you know, and George Foreman and Joe Frazier. And, you know, we'd go over to ABC Sports and we would watch the broadcast there and it would be like the event, you know, it would be the star-studded event to go over there and be able to watch on their live feed, you know, these fights from Madison Square Garden or from Africa or wherever. It was such a golden age of both sports and also, you know, as I say, we were the top dog. I mean, if it made the cover of Sports Illustrated, if it was in our pages, you know, then it mattered. You knew it happened and it made a difference. Um, you know, that story you mentioned about the whitewater raft thing, that was a very odd situation for me because it turned out they had sent a photographer but hadn't sent a writer on this, uh, you know, Dory's trip down the, um, down through the canyon. And I just happened to be walking down the hallway when they'd come out of their, uh, the meeting where they'd looked at the slides and stuff and someone was telling me about it. And I said, Oh, I did that. I went down in those dories. You know, this was my mother's idea of the last family vacation. I had just graduated from college. There were five kids and she said, we're going to go down the, the Colorado River together in wooden dories. I thought, okay, that sounds good. So we done that. And so. I just mentioned this to an editor, and the next thing I knew, they said, okay, well, well, why don't you write the the story to go along with it? And suddenly, I was writing a cover story, you know, for the magazine. So, <laughs> it was it was a very weird, um, you know, I could fight like hell to try to get another story, you know, even um, in at a column length. Um, and I was never promoted to being a writer. That was the other thing. By the time I left after being at the magazine for five or six years, I probably had, I don't know, 40 bylines ranging from columns to the feature story and the baseball issue in uh, 1979. I mean, I had a lot of stories. Um, I'd won some awards for them, but you know what? It was really hard if you were a woman there to be promoted. Very hard. A lot of the women uh, who were my contemporaries had to leave. So you just had this long list of women who would just have to leave in order to actually, you know, advance, right. you know, their careers. Right. If it's up to me, I would put you in the Baseball Hall of Fame. I truly would. I know you have a, uh, I know a press pass of yours is there, but I just think as far as groundbreaking people in the world of media, and when you see women covering Major League Baseball, and there are a good number of women now who cover Major League Baseball, and obviously women reporters come in and out without... Come in and yeah. out of clubhouses without a second thought anymore. It all started with you. 
It's really an honor having you on here. Seriously, I, re- I really well, thank you. I mean, you know, it opened the access for them. And what you know is that by opening the access, you are giving people opportunity. And that's really in the bo- end of it. All you want to be able to do is you want to say that person, if this is their passion, if they know what they're doing, if this is their sport and they want to do it, give them the opportunity, give them the access. If they succeed, they succeed. If they fail, they fail. But at least they've had the opportunity. They haven't been barred from that opportunity because they have two breasts, you know, between which their press pass hangs. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Jeff. I want to thank today's guest, Melissa Ludke, for joining me on Two Riders Sling and Yang. You can follow Melissa on Twitter at Melissa Ludke and visit her website, MelissaLudke.com. One can listen to Two Riders Sling and Yang on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, Anchor, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the dazzling MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep writing.